you wish to follow along, you could uh, turn in your Bibles to the seventh chapter of Luke. We are past the Sermon on the Plain, as chapter six is often called. Luke chapter seven, let me uh, say another quick prayer. Father, uh, as we come now to your word and this very, very special chapter in Luke, we do pray that you would help us to see several things from the four people that are going to be described in this chapter and that we might uh, understand the common ground that we, that we hold with these four people and learn from them and be inspired, Father, to do that. We need your Holy Spirit to open this word to us, and I do pray that that, uh, that that will be the case, that your Spirit will speak to each of us here this morning. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Luke chapter 7 <clears throat> is a fascinating chapter. Uh, many, in fact, think it's the most miraculous chapter of the entire Gospel of Luke. Uh, goodness, I would never make such a statement uh, just because I would be leery of, of statements like that referencing the Bible. However, uh, there are four people that we're going to run into in chapter 7 that each have uh, very miraculous interactions with Jesus. And uh, they are all singular people very different backgrounds and so forth, but I want to begin where we ended in, uh, with uh, especially chapter, uh, verse 47 of chapter six last week. We talked about that chapter, everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. And I mentioned that that's a wonderful paradigm for faith. Uh, the concept, the theological concept in particular of faith uh, Martin Luther was uh, uh, had a good deal to say about this in terms of, of understanding it. But I, what I mentioned last week was an analogy with an animal. What was the animal? Anybody remember the animal? How do you remember biblical faith? Okay. Cat. Exactly. Spelled with a... Excellent, excellent. K-A-T, the K is knowledge. I've got to have knowledge of Jesus some way or another. And that's where evangelism comes in. That's where missionaries come in. That's where Bibles, printed Bibles come in. That's, that's where um, streaming comes in. That's, uh, I, I, am, I am amazed. You're probably well aware of all these things. I was not, but um, each week uh, this church receives messages from, from groups of people who follow, who live in other countries, who follow uh, religiously the, the services of this church. And that is, again, getting knowledge out. Until somebody has knowledge of Jesus, obviously they can't know anything about Jesus. So that's the K. The A is assent. A census, as, as uh, Luther would, would call it, uh, I've got to hear that knowledge and then I've got to agree with that knowledge. I've got to compare it with all the other bits of knowledge that I have gained over a lifetime, all the other worldviews, perhaps, 
uh, that I have been following, all the other false gods that I have been following, and I've got to come to a point where I, I hear this knowledge of Jesus and I hear this knowledge of all these other uh, pseudo-gods, false gods, and I've got to think, all right, the Jesus information is what I agree with. That's what makes the most sense to me. So I'm going to go in that direction. You still don't have biblical faith at that point. You've got to get to the T, which is trust, uh, conviction, action. You've got to put it in play. And that is where we, uh, we're going to see that in these four people we're going to see in this, in this seventh chapter a really wonderful insight of, of people who do those things. Uh, my theory, at least initially, will be to take each one of them per week. We'll see, Lord willing, how that works out. But, um, uh, but uh, coming to Jesus, hearing of Jesus, and doing what I say, Jesus says in verse 47, uh, that is what is meant by building on the rock. If you remember that, that incredible sermon that Luke has presented to us in the sixth chapter ends with an analogy of building on a rock versus building on sand. I was thinking about that this morning as I was looking uh, at um, the Fox Weather Channel. They were looking at, at some of the houses near Daytona Beach. Uh, I, don't, I don't know anything about about building or anything like that, but I would be stunned if they would allow anybody to build a house. These houses were literally on the beach. They, they are, um, high tide would be within three or four feet of, uh, of their patios. And I don't think they let you do that anymore for very good reasons. Um, <clears throat> and they are now, of course, uh, the front portions of those houses have been washed away. Uh, because they were built on sand, largely. So building on the rock is, is what is meant by faith. That, that is the difference. A person who is, is moving through life with biblical faith is a person who has built on the rock. Uh, now, the four people that we're going to meet here who all built on a rock, the first one, oddly enough, is a Roman. He's a Gentile. Uh, he's a centurion. Uh, he has a dying servant. He's the one we're going to focus on a little bit today. Uh, the next one is a widow whose only son has just died. Now, that would be a tragic story under any circumstance, but in this case, it's especially so because in that culture, in those days, uh, a widow in that position would be extremely vulnerable, uh, much more so than today in this culture. But um, the third person, John the Baptist, we're going to see... Uh, we're going to see a fascinating aspect of, of his life and uh, a point in his life where he was wondering, wondering about the ascent, wondering about the knowledge he had and, and a little bit questioning. That's fascinating. And finally, there is a, an outcast, a sinful woman. Uh, she's going to show up with Jesus with an alabaster flask, and that is going to be a fascinating story as well. So this chapter is uh, one way to look at chapter seven of Luke is uh, to see Jesus giving us paradigms, uh, paradigms from all aspects of life, paradigms really outside the influence of, um, of these uh, folks that you might think would be the most natural. So the centurion 
is found in the first 10 verses of chapter seven. Uh, This man has a need and it's an odd need. Let's just look at the first two verses. Luke seven, one and two says, after he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, this is Jesus he's talking about, he entered Capernaum. Now Capernaum is, um, is up on the north, little slightly northwest of center of, of the Sea of Galilee. How many have been to Israel in here? Good many. Uh, didn't you fall in love with the Sea of Galilee? and the Galilee region in general, it is, it is uncanny to me the, the sense you get when, when, a, when you're wandering around Jerusalem, which is the southern end of, of uh, Israel. Uh, Jerusalem and south is either desert or rocks. It's inhospitable. You get the sense of, of, um, of, of difficulty, of, of something fighting back with you, and you can't I can't walk around the streets of Jerusalem without thinking about Pharisees and uh, people who are fighting back, people who are, uh, but Galilee up in the northern third, roughly, uh, of Israel, where the Sea of Galilee is, is a totally different environment. It, 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 goodness, um, citrus fruits, um, aloe plants, cascading over walls, everything is blooming, everything is green, everything is verdant. And it's difficult to find rocks. Uh, that's an overstatement. It's uh, it's not difficult to find them, but but they're not uh, everywhere, as they are with the olive groves in the southern end. And this is where Jesus purportedly spent most of his life, up in Galilee. Nazareth is right on, sort of on the border uh, of both of them. It's a little bit uh, north of center. Uh, but Capernaum is where Jesus spent most of his childhood. And you can still see the synagogue, the ruins of the synagogue in Capernaum today, where Jesus is going to, this story we're about to, to read here. So Jesus, it says, when he finishes this sermon, he entered Capernaum. Now, if you, if you in Israel today, rightly or wrongly, uh, they will you can go to the place where the Sermon on the Mount was preached. That's the sermon, chapters five, six, and seven in Matthew. Much longer sermon, but very similar. And people will be arguing for many, many centuries to come whether the two sermons were the same sermon described differently by the two apostles or whether it was two different sermons. But at any rate, uh, you're within sight of that. When you're in Capernaum, you're on this Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is a very, very small thing. It's like eight miles north to south and four miles east to west. Uh, it's, it's like a, a lake, not even that substantial a lake. And uh, you can see all of these places. So Jesus hasn't gone far if one assumes that he was uh, somewhere on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee when he enters Capernaum. Verse two, now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. Uh, So enter this this man called a centurion. There are many, many descriptions written throughout history of of the Roman uh, military hierarchy. A centurion would basically be, according to most commentators, something like a captain in the uh, service of the American, current American 
a military environment. So this Roman centurion uh, is a man who is stationed there and he is of significant rank, uh, but he is a Roman and he is therefore a Gentile. He is not Jewish. He is not, um, he is not an Israeli. He is a Roman centurion, a Gentile. And he has a servant. He has a slave. It's, it's um, difficult to to differentiate those two terms based on the Greek here. But the centurion is highly valued, uh, or the slave, excuse me, the the slave is highly valued by this centurion, but uh, he is sick and at the point of death. So he's not not only uh, problematic here, he is is at the point of death there in verse two. So, in the first place, this would be unusual that a Roman centurion would care about those things. The Roman centurion can get as many servants, slaves as he wishes anytime. And most people who were in the Roman army, and we don't know where this man's home was originally, but if you're posted to Palestine, you don't consider that a good posting, <coughs> which leads and lends to the notion that this is a little bit unusual with this uh, particular centurion. Uh, but he is, uh, he is, as we're going to see, he's an unusual man in a lot of ways. Uh, but what the problem that uh, faces him and more importantly faces his servant is death. Uh, he is on the point of death. It's the great leveler. Uh, it is, uh, it's the one thing that, uh, that we cannot deal with. The book of Ecclesiastes Uh, Everything is vanity, vanity, vanity. Why? Because ultimately you're going to die. And that's what um, the writer of of a lot of the wisdom literature in the Bible, uh, and of course, throughout scripture, and more importantly, in each of our lives, each of our lives is aware of this. Uh, We're all, that specter is always lurking somewhere within our families, within our own conscience, uh, whatever, about this great problem that we can do nothing about. The servant is dealing with that. Now let's look a little bit further into the centurion. Verse three, when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. Uh, okay, Roman centurion. Here are the words of Polybius. Polybius was a, a, one of the more famous Roman historians describing a centurion. They have to be seekers, I'm quoting now, seekers after danger as men who can command, steady in action, reliable. They ought not to be over-anxious to rush into the fight. But when hard-pressed, they must be ready to hold their ground and die at their posts, end of quote. That's the job, that's the role of the centurion. Now, if, if you put all of those qualities together in a human being, that, that makes uh, for a somewhat unusual uh, person. We, it, it's, um, we tend to go into the one extreme or, or the other, one person, um, kind of the Arnold Schwarzenegger um, uh, who's the Rambo? What, what's Rambo's name? Stallone. Stallone. Sylvester Stallone. Uh, where, where you, you think that, you know, he, he won't live unless he can go fight someplace. He's looking for a fight. He wants a fight. He's, he's out there trying. He'll 
create one if he has to. Uh, and then you have the other side uh, of the coin, but the Roman centurion had to be measured. Uh, this is a man who's going to be courageous. He's going to have the ability to, to do what's called for even up to the point of dying at his post. He is never supposed to come home, not on his shield. That was not just a Spartan uh, uh, aspect. Uh, but this person is not one who's going to, quote, rush into the fight. Uh, he's not trying to create uh, problems. He's there to solve them, but he will solve them with his life. So it, Roman centurions were, were expected to be men of high standard. Interestingly, everywhere in the New Testament that centurions are mentioned, they're reflective of this uh, sort of different, higher caliber individual. And it's interesting how many times uh, the centurions come into play. Uh, Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. Cornelius, the, the man who, who uh, gets Peter uh, into his home. Cornelius was a centurion. And he's, he's, he's intelligent enough. He's, he's willing enough. If you get back to the cat now, if he's, he, he's stationed here in, in, a, in a place uh, that's not his home. Uh, but he's heard about Jesus and he's thinking, I've got to at least go to the next step with this. I've got to find out if this Jesus is really who, who people say he is. Uh, so Cornelius is the uh, centurion. By the time you get to the end of Acts, it's a centurion who defends Paul in the Roman court system and says, wait a minute, this guy is a Roman citizen and I'm going to protect him and see that he has the rights of a Roman citizen before this tribunal. Uh, you get other, uh, other uh, centurions who are showing up throughout uh, the episodes of Jesus. Uh, but this particular man here in chapter seven, look at verse three, when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews. Uh, that's how we surmise that this man himself is not Jewish. Verse nine has a similar tangential aspect to it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Uh, as if Jesus is saying, I would expect perhaps to find that in Israel, but I certainly wouldn't expect it outside. So this man uh, is one of the Gentiles. Uh, he's humane. He apparently is a little bit on the, he's more wealthy than, than the average citizen of Israel at this time, and he's pious. Uh, his slave was dear to him, was honored by him, was esteemed by him. These are all words that can be uh, translated from that third verse uh, to, uh, to describe this, this centurion and his relationship uh, to the servant. And again, this is a bit unusual. Uh, the centurion, the person of that rank who is serving in the military in another country doesn't have to be uh, kind or caring or any of those kinds of things because Rome is Rome at this point. We're, we're dealing with Rome at uh, near its height and uh, the, all the power is on the side of the centurion. He need not uh, be a person who is concerned with much else. But it says he's heard about Jesus. Uh, again, there in verse three, when the centurion heard about Jesus, uh, he sends elders of the Jews to Jesus. He doesn't go himself. 
And he sends them asking them to see if Jesus will come and heal his servant. Now think again about that 47th verse, that notion of faith, uh, having the knowledge, having the assent, and he's acting upon it. Now you don't know yet uh, <coughs> what degree of faith are we talking about? Perhaps he's just saying, well, I'll try anything. Uh, here is, is this man, Jesus, I've heard of him and I know of his miracles. Remember the, the sixth chapter when Jesus is, is talking and delivering the sermon, he's also healing and he's within eyesight of Capernaum. So perhaps the centurion even, even heard the sermon, I don't know. Uh, but the centurion wants, uh, wants Jesus to come. Uh, he's, he's heard of this, he's, he's acting upon it. And all of this, of course, is underscoring the way you and I encounter Jesus. Uh, what do we do when we hear about Jesus? What do we do when we've heard sermons? What do we do when we uh, open a Bible and read? Uh, it does no one any good just to say, yeah, that's, that's a nice story, or hmm, that's, uh, yeah, maybe that actually happened. All of that is out there. I've got to take what I think of out there and bring it in here. It's got to go through here and bring it in here and start changing my behavior. That is biblical faith. Uh, and that is, is the reason that this centurion is, is uh, teaching all of us. Uh, so why would the Roman centurion, rather than going himself, why would he send uh, elders of the Jews to Jesus? And secondly, why in the world would they obey in the first place? Um, these are elders of the Jews. These are, are, are not, he didn't just go out and, and grab the first couple of people he found in Capernaum. So verses uh, four and five, these elders are not only going to obey, but here's what they're going to do. Verses four and five say, and when they, the, these uh, elders of the Jews, when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation and he is the one who built us our synagogue. Uh, that's, those are both stunning revelations. Those would be stunning revelations, sadly, today. Uh, this is no anti-Semitic person. This is a pro-Semite. My brother, uh, lives in, in Jacksonville and uh, the Florida-Georgia football game is always an intensely sad moment for me because I'm a Gator and my brother is a Bulldog. <clears throat> so he always um, lets me remember those things. And, uh, but apparently, I wasn't aware of this, but apparently the Georgia-Florida game, which was just a couple of weeks ago, Afterwards, somebody commandeered the scoreboard, the big, huge electronic scoreboard, and, and put a bunch of anti-Semitic slurs on it. And of course, the news media picked up on it, and that, that became the story, uh, bigger than the story of the game. But it's very, it's rampant today. And that, that to me, is a tragic, tragic uh, turn of events. I, I have... Uh, some of you know, I, I grew up in Macon, Georgia, but um, a little dirt street, but the house at the end of the dirt street uh, was a, a house of a Jewish family, uh, the Kaufmans. 
And the Kaufmans had children that were uh, the same ages as, as my brother and myself. And I probably spent um, 90% of my free time, which I had much of in grammar school, uh, at the Kaufman's house because they were such a fascinating family. They were into science. They, they were into bird watching. Uh, they were into all the, I remember this big piece of anthracite coal. I'll never forget this because I've duplicated this myself, but you get a piece of anthracite coal, you put it in a little bar, jar of, or uh, bowl with water and you put a little food coloring in it and wait a week and the crystals, the color of the food coloring you use, the crystals will start growing on top of the coal and it just looks very, very cool. And when you're that tall, uh, I was hugely impressed by this. And uh, Mr. Kaufman was a big, uh, he was an important person in the synagogue in Macon. His children were, were very uh, smart and we enjoyed each other's company for probably more than a decade uh, growing up. Uh, there used to be a stop on the tennis circuit and there was a, a famous tennis pro at that point named Arthur Ashe. Uh, Arthur Ashe was black. And Arthur Ashe always stayed at the Kaufman's house when he came to make and to play in the tournament. So I would run down there and challenge Arthur Ashe in my naive foolishness, <laughs> telling him that the game of golf was infinitely harder. Anybody can hit a tennis ball, but uh, just go try to hit a golf ball. But I, I wound up writing him letters of apology. He lived in Richmond, Virginia at that point. Uh, but at any rate, the point is, this was always a fascinating house, and I came to love Jewish people. And I, when we were in Philadelphia for 23 years at Westminster Seminary, there was a, it's the fifth largest Jewish city in the world. There are more Jews in Philadelphia than there are in Jerusalem. And uh, the seminary used that. We, had, we, we went uh, down into the middle of the Jewish area to street preach which was always very fascinating because uh, sometimes the messages weren't well received and you wound up running up the uh, market street uh, by the stock exchange there. But uh, the point is I've never understood uh, why so many Christians, so many Gentile Christians do not embrace Jews. I don't think there should be a Gentile church anywhere on the planet that does not include Jewish outreach. Uh, when you read the book of Romans, you see that the, the heart of the Jews was partially hardened in order to graft the Gentiles into the tree. Uh, I'm not saying we owe it to Jews. I'm, I'm saying that, uh, that we are at least equal. And it has always bothered me when I run into anti-Semitism. Uh, <clears throat> but at any rate, uh, this, this Gentile uh, did not have that problem. And uh, he, is, he sent these, these elders to plead earnestly with Jesus. But notice what their case is in verse 4. How did they approach uh, Jesus in verse 4? When they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy. He's worthy to have you uh, do this for him. Not surprising position uh, for these elders among the Jewish uh, camp here. They're saying that he loves our nation in verse five and he's the one that built us the synagogue. That's how we 
believe that uh, perhaps this centurion was was a, a wealthy person or at least wealthier. And again, this it is it is uh, just so amazing to sit in Capernaum and you can still sit on the stones uh, that this uh, centurion had uh, put in place to create that synagogue. Um, they're saying he's worthy. Utterly amazing story. The centurion has loved the Jewish nation, loved the Jewish people where he is posted. Uh, he's built a synagogue for them, which under, necessarily means he had to know something about God. Uh, he didn't just give them a bunch of money. He's there. Capernaum uh, is, is a, a village at most. It's, it's a small town. Uh, but in order to do this, given the fact that this man does not uh, despise or hate, uh, given the fact that this man's credentials, according to Polybius, had to be such that he was a, a man of character, putting all of this together, I do not think it's a long, long leap at all to assume this centurion talking often to these same elders, these same Jewish elders, about, uh, okay, why, why would you put that structure here in the synagogue? Why do you want this rather than that? Uh, what is it about the construction of the synagogue that, um, tell me about your faith, in other words. Uh, so he's, again, all of this is the K, the K of the cat. Uh, he's getting knowledge. He's getting a lot of knowledge. He's, he's got the God of the universe uh, in his hometown, if you will, uh, he doesn't, of course, know all of that, but uh, he's he's learning a lot. He's at least tender-hearted, uh, even though he is a warrior. Again, I, I just want to make a case for the fact that this centurion is a is a. I would I would like this guy. Put it that way. I would want to meet this man, and I, everything I know about him, I would like him. Uh, he's a powerful man. He's strong. He's wealthy. But the case made for him is that he's worthy. And here's the problem with that, of course. Ephesians chapter two, verses eight and nine say this, for by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Uh, what Paul, as you know, Jesus, the entirety of the New Testament goes out of its way to talk about the mandate of faith. We are saved not by anything in us, not by anything that we have done. All of those things come from having biblical faith. They're the fruit of the spirit, if you will, which we saw a couple of weeks back, uh, that Galatians 5 passage. Those things originate because we have been given new hearts. Uh, uh, it, I should have probably included the 10th verse there. The 10th verse of Galatians chapter two goes on to talk about that we're created, we're God's workmanship is, is what the ESV translates in English. That word workmanship in English is the Greek word poema, which where we get the word poem from, poetry. We, the Christian is, is a poem of God. We are created to be constantly radiating works and words uh, that that are poetry pointing to God, underscoring God, revealing God. Uh, those are the things that come from faith. They don't they don't make faith a a reward. Uh, again, we're meant to learn from from this sort of thing. If someone were to go to God, uh, 
you pick out uh, the person you, you think you want to go represent you to God, uh, do you want them going to God saying, you ought to think about uh, this person over here in Greenville, South Carolina, because he or she is worthy? Uh, that's not the right, uh, it's not the right approach. <clears throat> the cliche question, uh, which nonetheless is absolutely germane to every human on the planet is why would God let you into his heaven? Uh, that, that question is, is, I think it's a very important question and I don't, it doesn't bother me that it's become a cliche. It is, it remains a true question. If I'm standing before God today pleading my case and someone says, okay, why do you, some emissary in heaven or something, maybe it's St. Peter at the door, uh, were there such a thing? And, and why, why, why would I let you in? Uh, I don't want to respond anything with any word whatsoever that relates to me. The only thing, the only reason that God is going to let anybody into heaven is because of saving faith, which is a gift, which he has given me himself. It's not anything in me. Uh, you don't go to, to God looking for justice. You go looking for mercy. Uh, so this uh, story that Centurion is unfolding here is meant for us. Uh, what makes us worthy? Remember Romans chapter three, verse 10, none is righteous, no, not one. And that, that passage just goes downhill like a brick. Uh, Romans three ten goes all the way down through about uh, verse 19 or 20. And it just gets worse and worse and worse. That's who we are. Uh, but thankfully, Romans three twenty one and following, but God, but God and justification. Uh, Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things. Uh, the man who is uh, called the father of um, microbiology is a man named Antoine Van Leeuwenhoek. The year was 1674. So a long, long time ago, 350 years ago, looked at a drop of water under a microscope, which he had made. And here's what he says he saw. He said, I saw little eels or worms lying all huddled up together and wriggling. Uh, that's frankly what we may think more accurately uh, God sees when he looks at us. Uh, I'll dress it up just a tad. Alexander White, Scottish pastor, famous Scottish pastor, lived from 1836 to 1921. Uh, had his church in Edinburgh there. And here's what he said. The true Christian's nostril is to be continually attentive to the inner cesspool. <laughs> I don't know if that dressed it up or down. I'm not sure about that. Uh, but the point is, uh, it, it's not the fact that we're worthy. It's not, uh, so how is Jesus going to respond? Here is verse six. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends. And now the centurion is going to change the narrative just a bit. Uh, but uh, Jesus goes with them. Why does Jesus go with them? Because he came to seek and save the lost. Uh, the centurion ponders in the second part of verse six. Maybe he's changed his mind. Here's what it says. Uh, when Jesus was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Remember, it wasn't the centurion that went to Jesus and said, I'm worthy. 
It was the elders of the Jews who went to Jesus and said, you should come Jesus because this man is worthy. Uh, so this uh, centurion is not having a change of heart. Uh, he in fact is, is uttering, remember the man in the synagogue, the sinner in the synagogue who won't even raise his head. He simply pours out the facts before God that I am a sinner, unworthy to be saved. While the Pharisee is up there beating his chest uh, saying, well, I'm glad I'm not like that poor man. That dad really is a sinner there, but me, I'm a Pharisee. Uh, so the centurion is saying, Jesus, I'm not worthy. Uh, why? Because you, Jesus, are worthy. I am not worthy for you to be in my presence. Uh, Phil Riken, interestingly about this verse, says, how do you see yourself? How do you see Jesus? The two are connected. That's what this centurion has just told us. How I see myself and how I see Jesus uh, need to be connected. Uh, he has faith in Jesus to heal even from a distance. What helps this centurion to understand who Jesus is? Well, it's his, his faith. He's Again, we, he, this man, whether he has what we would call saving faith or not, uh, it sure, sure sounds that way to me. Uh, but uh, this centurion, remember that job description that we read from Polybius. Uh, this is a man who understands authority. Uh, he's not going to wield it uh, poorly, he's, but he knows what it means to be in, in charge. He knows what it means that the buck will not pass from his hands. Uh, it is his rule that will, that will carry whatever situation uh, comes into his life. And he sees that in Jesus. Uh, one man of authority looking at another man of authority. Uh, there is a fabulous uh, story in 2 Samuel 23. I won't read it uh, due to time, but if you want to see what, what a, a person who has the character of this centurion uh, in 2 Samuel 23, verses 8 to 17, that's the story about David. Uh, this, this wonderful man of character, grievous sinner, but wonderful man of character, man after God's own heart, grievous sinner, but he has faith. Uh, but in that particular episode, that's when, when he's just saying, he's not even, I don't even know if he was aware of what he was saying, but you remember he hadn't been home in a long time. And he's got uh, his followers around him and just almost, you get the impression it's almost an afterthought uh, probably said almost inaudibly, he said, goodness, I'd love to have a glass of water from Bethlehem, from the well back in Bethlehem. Well, Bethlehem is in the hands of the enemy. But this group of men who hear him so love and appreciate uh, David that, that they risk their lives to go, to go bring him a glass of water. And if you remember what he does with it, when he gets back, he's so stunned that they have done this, that he pours the water out on the, on the ground. He said, I'm not worthy to drink this, given what you have just done for me. There's a lot of uh, interaction with what we're looking at with these, uh, this uh, centurion. Uh, the centurion, of course, uh, every order the centurion gets is backed by the chain of command that goes all the way to Caesar himself. But Jesus gives a command and it goes, Jesus is God. 
So there is no higher authority. And I think the centurion understands that. So how's Jesus going to respond? In verse six, the centurion says, don't, uh, don't trouble yourself. I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Verse seven, he says, therefore, I did not presume to come to you. So he's saying, I'm not even worthy to come to you. That's why I sent some, but say the word and let my servant be healed. That is faith. Uh, the centurion saying, you don't, you don't have to even be here, physically be here. Just speak it and it will happen. I like that as a definition of faith. Uh, verse eight, for I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go and he goes. And to another, come and he comes. And to my servant, do this and he does it. Now here's Jesus's response. Wonderful, beautiful ending to this Uh, first of four people in chapter seven. When Jesus heard these things, verse nine, he marveled at him and turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Now he doesn't do anything, or at least we're not told that anything happens there. You've got got these odd, you've got the centurion, you've got these Jewish elders and they're, they're coming to Jesus saying he's worthy for it. Uh, Jesus isn't even even answering any of those things. He's resonating with what the centurion is saying. And in verse 10, when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. So Jesus does in fact heal. He performs this incredible miracle without even being present. Now he obviously will uh, perform many, many miracles throughout the gospels and often with such um, sort of tangential means. You know, one time he'll, he'll go down into the dirt and he'll make a little bit of, of mud or something and he'll put it on someone's eyes and they, and they can see. Uh, there are all kinds of ways, but Jesus uh, will be doing those things as we will see as we go through this gospel. Uh, there are always reasons for that. In this case, uh, he doesn't even move. He doesn't speak. They go back, the elders from the Jews that were sent go back, and here is the servant, and the servant is healed. Uh, but again, look at this faith of this centurion. He admitted that he needed help. That's the first thing. Uh, I haven't run into many people that wouldn't ultimately get to that point. There, there are some. Uh, but the centurion knows that he needs help. He knows that he's not worthy enough to perform it, but he has complete faith in Jesus and the power of the word of Jesus. He says, you don't even have to come. You don't have to just stay where you are. You don't have to be here. And again, he's a Gentile and Jesus heals his servant. So again, the the first uh, uh, pericope, we'll get used to that word, that uh, first little little self-contained piece of scripture uh, first 10 verses of chapter seven is, is the first of the four people we're going to meet. But every one of them is not just an interesting story. Every one of them is full of implications for us because we too are Gentiles. We're not part of the main branch. We're grafted into it. Goyim is, is the word that, uh, that was used, which means dogs. Uh, that's what Gentiles are. And we, we don't uh, necessarily remember that often enough, but, um, but we too were saved without Jesus being 
uh, we didn't have to go to Palestine. We didn't have, when he ascended, you know, so many times it's easy to think if I had only been here 2000 years ago and could have gone and seen Jesus, could have sat there and listened to him, could have been touched by, you don't need any of that. Uh, it is, I tell you what's been the most stunning uh, ministry to me as I have very falteringly attempted to minister uh, to some uh, of the wonderful uh, people in this church is I will go into scenarios where I'm thinking this is, uh, this is, boy, this is, this is difficult. Uh, perhaps it's with someone dying. I'm um, not going to relate that, but um, perhaps it's someone who is, is hurting uh, and knows they're going to soon die. And what I see time and time and time again from these people is an exclamation of how blessed I am. And I'm talking about your brothers and sisters, uh, our brothers and sisters in this church. It's a blessing. Why? Because they know that wherever they are in whatever situation they are, they don't need Jesus to come into their rooms, into their hospitals, Jesus is already there. He's there in the, in the presence of the Holy Spirit. He's dwelling within all of us. And that indwelling comes through in the words of, of the saints, in the words of the Christian, uh, in the words of solid, solid faith, of knowing rock solid who Jesus is, agreeing that this Jesus is my savior and I'm going to act on that regardless of what I feel like today or what I will feel like tomorrow. Let's close in prayer. Father, uh, we do see these small little pieces of scripture and so much in them, so much uh, to ponder, so much to think about. We thank you for the, the people of faith that you illustrate for us, whether they're um, Anna or Simeon or uh, some of those uh, people that would, would have been considered minor individuals in the life of Palestine or the centurion who would be seen as an enemy by most of the people in Palestine uh, to the Davids and the Abrahams and the faith there or uh, to these 12 men who are going to uh, take this message of Jesus uh, throughout the world that they knew at that point in time and indeed die giving out this truth, this knowledge because they knew just like this centurion, centurion, that you have come to save the lost. We were such people at one point, Father. We were those that someone prayed about, someone came to, that we gave this faith that you had given to us and you healed our souls, which is the sickest part of us. Our bodies will be renewed, but you've taken our souls to yourself and we will have eternity with you in the new heaven and the new earth. We thank you for your grace, your mercy to the unworthy. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.